I'll be reading from Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should not tell, that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just so need you. And we want to think rightly concerning your son, the Lord Jesus, and that he would truly have that place of, of honor and preeminence in our hearts that he so, is so worthy of, and that we would view him as the majestic one, and that our hearts would truly be bowed to him in worship. I pray that you'd use your word and minister to us by your spirit, that Jesus would truly be exalted within each of us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been um, here with us for a while, you know that I'm preaching through Matthew, and um, we shouldn't be in chapter 16, because last week we were in chapter 13. And skipping any of Scripture to me is like what my dentist said one time. He says, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just floss the ones you want to keep. <laughs> and they're all important, all of our teeth, and all of God's Word is important. I started Matthew um, not intending to, to preach through every um, portion of it, but it's just so hard to skip anything. And so I'm struggling here with, you know, skipping chapters 14 and 15. But um, my attention this week, as I've been seeking the Lord on how to proceed, has really been here in chapter 16, and especially this first question that Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? 
And, um, and so this is where I've been. I feel like this is where I've needed to be um, in my own relationship with the Lord. And so this is where we are today. I will, I do want to just say, in, in, in leading into this, introducing chapter 16, um, in chapter 13, we get an idea of what people thought about Jesus two and a half years into his ministry. In chapter 13, verse 53, it says, And it came about when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, and, so that they became astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother? Um, called, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So clearly, after over two years of ministering, um, people still did not understand who Jesus was. His own, his own village that knew him best, in a sense, knew him least. And so it's a valid question when Jesus asked in chapter 16, who do men say that I am? In chapter 14, after walking on the water and Peter comes out of the boat and walks on the water and then Peter sinks, we know the story, and then they both get back in the boat and it says in chapter 14, verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. So at least these 12 men are understanding who Jesus is. He is the son of God. But they were not in the majority by any means. When we come to chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have teamed up against Jesus and they're testing him. And they're not testing him because they are wanting to discover who he is. They've already made up their minds who he is. They think that he is a fraud. They think that, that he's a false prophet. They think that, that he is anything other than what he claims to be. And so these tests are not for the sake of revealing um, um, for their own sincere desire to know who he is. It's just for the purpose of trying to catch him and defeat him. So now Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And they were all wrong, dead wrong. Jesus has already, at the end of chapter 13, described himself in the league of prophets, just as a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown, and he's speaking of himself. But he's not just a prophet. He would be the fulfillment of everything that the prophets pointed to. He is the prophet, and so much more. People can be, give spiritual answers about that who Jesus is, answering the question, who is the Son of Man? And they can give some very good answers. Prophet. He's like John the Baptist. He's like Elijah. He's like Jeremiah. But they are absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And remain lost because what we, how we answer that question, who is Jesus, determines everything. And being close to the truth 
is not enough. Who is Jesus? So Jesus turns and asks them, Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, once again answering for the others, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. A plus, home run, he knocks it out of the park. Good for you, Peter. And this is amazing what Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son, not just of God, but the living God. It's amazing what Peter has come to. And Jesus is going to say, you didn't come to this on your own, but my Father revealed this to you. But this statement, this confession here, it's really a confession of faith, and it's something that the other disciples, at least 10 of the other disciples, would have wholeheartedly agreed with. Judas, probably not. I believe that this is, at least in Peter's mind, but I believe more than just in Peter's mind, it is a statement declaring the deity, the full deity of Jesus Christ. They worshipped him in chapter 14. You don't worship simply a prophet, an angel, but you worship God. And at least in chapter 14, these men are worshiping him as God. And so now Peter is saying, I get it, who you are. You are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's not just, I, I don't think it's just Peter who understood the significance of this. And what troubles me, and, I, and it may just be me, but I read all these different commentaries, all these different scholars, and I can't tell you how the first go-to as you read on what does it mean to say that He is the Son of God, it's to say that He is King. And yes, Matthew is about Jesus being king, but so much more. And if that's all that Peter's getting, you are king. If that's all Peter is saying, then this is far less than who Jesus is. We know that Satan, when Jesus was being tempted, said, if you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. That doesn't sound like Satan saying, if you are a king. But he sees him as being something more. The demons would cry out and say, son of God, are you going to send us into the abyss? When the angel announced to Mary the birth of Jesus, the angel called him the son of God. And even the high priest, when Jesus was on trial in Matthew 26, he's going to say, do you claim to be the Son of God? And Jesus says, it is as you have said. And the high priest tears his garments and says, blasphemy. Well, if Son of God only means king, then why is that high priest ripping his robes and crying blasphemy? It is so much more than just king. Martha in Chapter 11 of John, she says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, He who comes into the world, not one who's just been born as king. And John wrote that his purpose in writing John, the Gospel of John, was that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. I believe from Genesis chapter 3, when God told Adam and Eve, 
that from the seed of the woman one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And when Eve named her first son Cain, the marginal reading there, it's pretty clear that she thought this was the God-man, that this was one who was more than just human, but he was both God and man. And that has been the expectation ever since, that when the Messiah, the Christ, came, he would be fully man and fully God. And more people understood that than I think we give credit for when we read our Bibles. Even the unbelieving high priest understood. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I had a meltdown this week that I'm not at all proud of in a restaurant with three men, and I stormed out in anger. And haven't been back yet to that restaurant. I need to go back. But um, I've apologized to the one that I was angry with. But I have to say that that is a large part of what has drawn me this morning to this text. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it is one thing to profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what do our lives say about Him? What are we professing in our actions? Anger? Worry? Anxiety? Despair? Who do you say that I am? If he's just a king, just a good man, a mighty man, it's not enough. But if I truly understand and profess him to be the son of the living God, it changes everything. Absolutely everything changes. Because that displaces me, and there is no room anymore for self and for all those things that characterize our fallen humanity, the flesh. Anger, worry, despair. But now there should be peace because Jesus is king. And he is ruling from above. No need for worry and anxiety. Certainly no reason for despair. He is our living hope. I believe that though Peter is going to have to walk in the reality of this the rest of his life, just as you and I have to, and there are going to be times when Peter is going to pull away, in his, at least in the way that he behaves, from the reality of Christ is the Son of the living God, nonetheless, he gets it. And I hope that we each get it. And that we can answer quickly and from the heart with as much clarity as Peter has here at a time when nobody else was getting it who Jesus is, that we would be rock-solid sure that He is the Son of the living God, that He is the Christ, the Messiah. I remember when Ian Thomas um, officiated a wedding 
one time that I was attending. And he told this young bride and groom who were just getting married, he said, should God give you children, your children have the right to see Christ in you. And anybody who professes that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God, should be displaying the Son of the living God. And others have the right to see that. So Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Well, why? Why did this get revealed to Peter? I think it goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent, and you revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. Peter is humble enough, contrary to sometimes how we view him, but for Peter to have this kind of depth of perception and understanding of who Jesus is speaks of humility not of pride. You reveal yourself to, the, to babes, not to the wise and intelligent. And for whatever we say about Peter, he had to have been a man of childlike faith, of humility that he would have this kind of insight and understanding in who Jesus is when everybody else was so unclear about him. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. There's a play on words going on here. Um, everybody acknowledges it. One word for Peter, another word for, for the rock that he will build his church upon, they are Petra and Petros, so they're not identical. One speaks of a massive rock or a shelf of rock, and the other would speak of stones. And, he, and Peter is being described as a stone, not as that massive rock that the church would be built on. There are three ways to handle this. One is to say that Peter was given a position over the church that nobody else had. Another is to say that the rock is not Peter, but it is Jesus himself. And the third is to say that the rock is the profession that Peter made, the confession of faith, that upon this rock, what rock? That Christ is the Son of the living God. That is what the church is built on. I, I, as I was studying, I, first guy I read, Peter's the rock. Second guy I read, Jesus is the rock. Third guy I read, the confession is the rock. And they're all evangelicals. And I was so surprised to see that there are good scholars, good men that would take any of the three positions. The problem here with calling Peter the rock is he says, upon this rock. And why didn't he just say, upon you, Peter, if he meant Peter? And he didn't say that. And there's nothing here that says that Jesus gestured to Peter and pointed at Peter and said, upon this rock. And because it's such a significant issue, I can't believe that if Jesus was pointing at Peter, that Matthew wouldn't have told us that. And so the this, I don't see, refers to Peter. And we know that the, that the, the church 
is built first and foremost on Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says the foundation of Christ, which is the foundation of the church, and every man is building on that foundation, either with wood, hay, and straw, or, or gold, silver, and precious stone, but the foundation of the church is Jesus. And we know that Peter, though he was used by God to first introduce the gospel to the Jews and then the first to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles, that there was not a succession of, 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 of authority from Peter to future popes. That just never existed. Um, and so it, it, there's, there's problems with saying that it was Peter. No problem with saying it was Christ, except it still seems a little peculiar that he would say upon this rock when he's referring upon to himself. He could have just said that I am the foundation, and he didn't. I personally lean towards saying that the rock is the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, because you're not going to be saved unless you can can believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, as John says in John 20, that, that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. You've got to know who He is. In the epistle of 1 John, John writes and says that any other spirit is the spirit of the Antichrist. To, be, to deny the deity of Christ and the essence of who He is is the spirit of Satan. It is not the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus being the Son of God. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I should say that the gates of hell will not, or the gates of Hades will not overpower it. To the Jewish people, the gates of Hades was a, was a symbol of death, and the greatest power that Satan has is the power of death. And I think that Jesus is, is simply saying that his church will not be overcome by death. This is, by the way, the first time that church is mentioned in the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, I will build my church. It's in the future. It's not something that's already existing. I don't believe the church was in the Old Testament. I don't believe the church is in the Gospels. The church started in Acts chapter 2. He calls it my church in distinction from Israel, it would seem. And he says that this church, which he is going to build in the future, will not be overpowered or crushed by death. And there have been a lot of people in his church that have been martyred, but it has not brought the end of his church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are a symbol of authority and of power. And so in what sense is he saying to Peter, I will give you the keys or power or authority? It's not over the church. He's changing subjects here. Verse 16 or 18, he's speaking of the church. In verse 19, he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. He seems to be talking about two different things, even though everyone who is in the church is part of the kingdom of heaven. I appreciated one writer who's saying that what Jesus seems to be saying is saying, Peter, you are going to have a significant role in the kingdom that is coming in the millennium. And we know that Jesus has made reference to that in other places, that he... Peter would be sitting on one of the 12 thrones that would be with, positioned with Christ. He would have a position of authority in his kingdom reign, in his millennial reign. And then an interesting phrase here, whatever you, shall, what, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And 
Um, this is where the, the Greek gets a little thorny. Um, this is um, written in the, in the, as I understand, in the perfect tense with a futuristic um, aspect to it. And the idea is not that what Peter does will impact heaven. That idea is going to come up in chapter 18. But this is, it's, it's what Peter is doing is a response to what's going on in heaven. Not that Peter is impacting heaven, but that heaven is impacting Peter would be a better way to, play, to say it. I'm trying to find the exact um, terminology here in my notes. Whatever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. So the idea is, is that Peter is, is to discern what is the mind of God and then judge accordingly in his role of authority in Christ's kingdom. Now, I like that thought. Think about it with me. Jesus is saying to Peter, the day is going to come whenever what you bind on earth is what has been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be what you have loosed in heaven. So that's a position of authority to bind and loose, but it's not acting on his own initiative. It is responding to what God is doing. So in other words, Peter is going to be living in that reality of Christ is directing his words, his actions, everything. Just as the Lord, as he was experiencing here, he didn't even know, he was, wasn't even aware of it, that God had revealed to him who Christ was. And in, in a, to be technical, precise, he's just prophesied. And he wasn't even aware of it. And so to prophesy is to hear from God and to speak what God has said. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you heard from God. And you spoke what God gave you. And guess what? This is going to be normal. This is going to be your constant experience in the millennium. When you are reigning with me and you are in that position of authority, this is normality for the person who is in the right position with me. Normality for the Christian, in other words, is that he would be living a life of responsiveness to God and his will. And so it's not the exception, it's the normal thing for a person to live in such harmony with God that God's words are being spoken through us, God's actions are taking place through us, that just as Jesus says, I do nothing of my own initiative. Repeatedly, Jesus says that in the Gospel of John. I do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I speak. As I see, I do. And I think this is what Jesus is describing to Peter. This is what you're stepping into. This is what you've just experienced in your confession of me. And this is going to be the reality. And honestly, I think we know this as Christians. This is why the Spirit of God lives in us. To not just tell us what to do, but to speak through us. That our words are His words. Our actions are His actions. And this is why it grieves us so deeply when we see it isn't true, like it wasn't for me this week in that restaurant. Can't describe the grief of that. And it, and it's, and it comes down to, God, I wasn't responding to you. Because when we respond to him, 
you're not going to see that kind of stuff. And this is what Jesus is saying. Life with him means that what we do is what is a response to what is going on in heaven, or in other words, what God is doing. It's God acting through us in every sense of the word. And now, to change here, to move into this next paragraph, I think that if, if Jesus was asking a question in the first part, he was, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now the question is, in this sec second paragraph, are God's interest your interest? From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? <laughs> Rebuking the one you just said is the son of the living God. Oh, my word. I, you know, goodness gracious. Talk, you know. So here he's gone from, from great humility that God could reveal this to him to the, to the pinnacle of arrogance. Who do you think you are to rebuke God? You've just confessed that he is the son of the living God and you're rebuking him? We're just like him. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. And once again, I, 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 you know, I see these things and I go, yeah, Jesus, Satan, he needed it, you know. But on the other hand, I go, anytime my interests are contrary to his, the same words fall upon me. Get behind me, Satan. This is the same one that Jesus said, take my yoke and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And this was not a gentle response. Get behind me, Satan. Are God's interest my interest? This is the first time that Jesus clearly states to his disciples that he was going to die and rise again from the dead. And we can, can understand Peter and cut him some slack in the sense that he's responding emotionally, he loves Jesus, and he just doesn't want to see him die. We get that. But again, sincerely held beliefs, a sincere response can still be a satanic response. Because Peter's interests were not God's interest as commendable as his response may have been, that he doesn't want Jesus to die. It's not God's interest, and it is satanic. Any interest other than God's interest are of the devil. So what are God's interests? For him to be glorified in all things, in all people, in all places, at all times, for Jesus to be exalted and obeyed without hesitation, for us to die to ourself and to learn what it means to let Christ live in and through us, these are the interests of God. 
we can receive the revelation of God, we can prophesy under the Spirit's direction, and then immediately be used by Satan because our interests are other than his. And because interests contrary to God are such a huge deal, it is God's mercy and grace to call them what they are so that we would wake up and make sure that our lives, our interests, are consistent with his own. What is our greatest interest in the place where we work? What is our greatest interest with our marriages and our families? What is our greatest interest toward those that we relate to and call friends? Is it that Jesus would be honored and glorified? Or is it that we would be appreciated, respected, loved, that we would be made happy, that life would go as we want it to go? Jesus came to die. And he said, that is God's interest for me. And that is what I will surrender We switch jobs, we get in and out of marriages, we, we leave relationships with people, and sadly, many of the times, it's because our interests are being frustrated and denied. Do we stop and say, God, what is your interest for me? Because God's interest, very likely, is going to be the same interest he had for Jesus, and that was to suffer, and die so that God would be glorified. There's no way around it. God's interest for Jesus was that he suffer and die. That wasn't the long-term interest, but on the short term, that was what God's interest for Jesus was. And Jesus knew it. And I think many times... If we don't rule that out as what could potentially be God's interest for me, suffering and dying, and we start from saying, God, I don't know what your interests are, but I recognize that if your interest for Jesus could be to suffer and die, who am I to say that that could not also be your interest for me? And if I just start with that being a possibility, I find in my prayer life it changes everything. Because now all of a sudden, the commitment to self is not part of the equation. God could not possibly want me to go through life unhappy. God could not possibly want me to suffer. This can't be His will. Why not? It was his will for his son. And we are not greater than he is. It is not his ultimate will any more than it was his ultimate will for Jesus. But it can be his will, his interest on the way to what he has for us. And many times will be. The key in walking in his interest is to stay dependent, to renounce our ideas 
for ourselves. And to understand that suffering precedes glory. In verse 24, he begins another paragraph. And here I think the question is, how do we respond to Jesus? Who do we say that Jesus is? Are our interests God's interest? And how do we respond to him? Because if our interests are truly God's interests, then verses, these verses from 24 on are going to be true of our lives. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, for me, not for himself, but wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross are not just hard things that come from living in a fallen world. I thought being little was my cross when I was in junior high. That is not the cross. The cross is not being born with handicaps, deformities, as sad as that is. But the cross is the consequence of saying yes to Jesus. Yes to Jesus. What is a disciple? It's simply one who follows Christ, submits to Christ, learns of Christ, and becomes like Christ. A disciple is one who takes up the cross, the consequence of following Christ, and remains following him. It is one who denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Jesus. You're a Christian because you place your faith in Christ for salvation. But Jesus seems to be making a distinction here between being a Christian and being a disciple. How do I respond to Jesus now that I am in relationship with him? Now that I'm saved, am I just saying, I'm forgiven, salvation is mine, I get to go to heaven, or am I living as a disciple, a follower, a learner, one who is becoming like his master? There is a difference between being simply one who has trusted Christ for salvation and one who is following him, learning of him, and becoming like him. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's unfortunate here that the word for soul in verse 26 and the word for life in 25 are the same exact word, but they're being translated in two different ways. So it's, a, it's not a translation, it's an interpretation Hard word to understand, I get it. Whoever wishes to save his life. The option here, as a person who is thinking about following Christ, as a Christian, not a person who's already, it's one who's already trusted in Christ, one who say, but will I yield to him? Will I let his interest become my interest? Will I follow him as a Christian? The option for us as believers is that I can pull back and seek to save my life, preserve my life from the cost of saying yes to Jesus, of following him, of letting his interests be mine. 
And many, many times we do that. Or the option is to lose my life. To say, Jesus, I am not the most important thing. You are. And I will live for your sake, not for my sake. And when we make that, that exchange, not my will, but thine be done, as a Christian, we actually gain our lives. And it's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life where you will see that the richest, fullest people, the people who are experiencing the greatest joy, the greatest significance in life, are those who have said no to self and are saying yes to Christ. And it's an immense paradox. They have died to self, and yet they are living like few people around us are living because they said, Jesus, not my life, but your life. Not my will, but your will. And they come into the life of God. Paul will describe it in Romans 8, and it says, if you live according to the flesh as a Christian, you must die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. And so by dying, reckoning, reckoning our death with Christ, that we've been crucified with Him, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us, we actually know His life. But if I seek to avoid the cost of being identified with Christ and the cost of saying, God, I want your interest to be mine, I rob myself of the very thing I desire. What will it be profited if a man gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It seems that there will be perhaps at least a loss that we will experience now as well as in eternity if we live for self rather than for him. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So this is what makes me think there's a future impact upon the daily decisions that we're making to have Christ's interest be ours and to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, we may not and we will not experience in this life everything that God wants for us. But when he comes again, and he is coming, he will give recompense. I believe the idea is reward for those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed him. There is a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. There is a choice. We either live for here and now, or we live for eternity. When we live for eternity, it will be reflected in our values, our priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we, how we serve others, sharing our faith. But the main thing is we're just saying, Jesus, not my life, but yours. And there is a greater loss than the loss that we could experience by saying yes to Jesus. We could lose our jobs, our reputation, even our life for yielding to his interest. But there's a greater loss, a loss that could never be recovered. And again, as children of God who know that we serve the living God, the choices seems great, I get it. But in light of who Jesus is, and in light of eternity, 
It is only reasonable. As Paul says in Romans 12, this is your reasonable service of worship to say, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the son of the living God. I know what your interests are. And it is not about me. Your interests are all about Jesus. And I know how you would have me to respond to you, to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. I'll close this in prayer. God, we do know, as those who have come to Jesus for salvation, for eternal life, for the forgiveness of our sin. We know Jesus is the Son of the living God, fully God, able to save, and He has saved us. It is our heart's desire, God, that not only would we give that confession for salvation in order to receive what You've offered us freely, eternal life. But that we would also, Lord Jesus, embrace your interest for us, whatever the cost. That we would die to ourselves and take up the cross and follow you. This is the way of life. We entered life, God, by saying we were dead and we have nothing of ourselves to take confidence in. And we simply received by faith the offer of eternal life. And I know, God, your ambition is that we now live each day in the same way that we came to you. Denying ourselves, recognizing there is nothing in us, and coming to you and saying, Jesus, live your life. And I thank you, God, this is why you've come. This is why you, you rose from the dead, so that you might indwell us, that, that, that our lives lived daily before others would be an expression of your life lived through us. That what is true of heaven would be true of us in our words and our actions, that Jesus would be seen. We long for this. I thank you, God, for your cleansing work when we, when we do fail to, to trust in you, to abide in you. But I pray, God, that increasingly, from moment to moment, we would be a people who, who yield to you and allow all that is true of you to be expressed through us. And we thank you, God, that nothing that we give up today compares with all that you have given us in Christ and all that awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen.